Kings get the glory, pinks get the numbers, silvers get the anglers' love, and chums get no respect. But almost everywhere in Alaska, it's the red salmon that fills people's freezers. For this first of a two-part show, we hop on board the FV Captain Cook with skipper Malcolm Milne for a day of purse-saining for sockeye. Full disclosure, I fished with Malcolm for many years, including the first three years he owned this boat. From the studios of KBBI in Homer, Alaska, my name is Jeff Lockwood, and it's time to check the pantry. going to come right out and say it. I've been dreading this episode since I started making the show. Sooner or later, if you're doing a show about food in Alaska, you're going to have to deal with red salmon. And everyone in Alaska, whether they've lived here for 10,000 years or just flew in from Minnesota yesterday, has opinions about red salmon. So let's just acknowledge right here in the beginning that this show is one tiny tile in the monumental mosaic that salmon is created in the Pacific Northwest, and that I could devote every single future episode of this show to this fish and still not really come close to telling its story. It's not much of an exaggeration to say that the dominant shapers of the landscape from western Alaska down to Oregon have been glaciers, seismic activity, and salmon. The first two are obvious, the last perhaps not. But it is generally accepted now that the annual return of nutrients from the ocean to the land in the form of spawning fish is responsible for much of the incredible lushness of the coastal rainforests of the North Pacific Ocean. The abundance of salmon and the ability to store it in large quantities as a reliable food source over the winter is the reason people have lived continuously here for well over 10,000 years. All five Pacific salmon species, as well as the various trouts, fall into the genus Oncorhynchus, Greek for hook nose. The reason for this should be obvious. Oncorhynchus nurka is the sockeye salmon in particular. Its species name, nurka, the name given it by the people of Russia's Kamchatka Peninsula. The species names of all five Pacific salmon, in fact, come from the people of Russia's Kamchatka Peninsula, thanks to Vitas Bering and his first Kamchatka expedition. The common English name sockeye derives from halcomalum, the language spoken by the inhabitants of British Columbia's Fraser River Valley, who called the fish suke, or redfish. And red salmon is, of course, the other common name in the U.S., less for the redness of its flesh, although it does tend to be the most red of the five species, and more for the bright red its body turns as it swims upriver to spawn. For a species that is so abundant, living both in the sea and on the land means that they are easily threatened in both homes. The salmon runs of Washington, Oregon, and Northern California have been all but wiped out over the last hundred years by the dual pressure of overfishing at sea and damming rivers to support agriculture and electricity on land. The Kamchatka Peninsula's salmon fisheries, making up about 35% of the world's supply, were for years dogged by illegal and unmanaged fisheries, while mining companies lined up to wreck streams, although considerable work has taken place to improve the situation. And the Alaska salmon fishery, long considered one of the best regulated commercial fisheries in the world, is threatened at sea by a warming ocean and in Bristol Bay by the proposed Pebble Mine. For now, though, they're still returning every year, more in one year, less in another. If you look out a window north of San Francisco and south of the Brooks Range, nearly everything you are looking at exists where it does, in the shape it does, in some way, whether obvious or not, because of salmon. All right, the grill is lit. The chimney starter is smoking. 
the charcoal will catch in a little bit. And for our first trick, we're gonna grill a whole salmon. So this particular fish is a fairly small red. It's maybe five pounds, not very big. Um, for those of you listening outside of Alaska, a five pound fish here is a pretty small fish. Nobody would be very impressed by this salmon in terms of uh, bragging about it to their friends, but as far as being the perfect size for the grill, this is ideal. It will fit just across the width of a 22 inch charcoal kettle grill. It's head on. I'm personally a big believer in uh, if you're gonna grill a fish, it should be whole. You should be able to look it in the eye and you should be able to pick out and eat the delicious cheek meat and the little morsels on the head. I really haven't done very much to it. Gutted, cleaned, stuffed it full of, somebody gave me a bunch of sage and a bunch of oregano. So I stuffed the belly full of that. If I had a lemon, I would put a lemon in there. Lemon is very delicious in this, but I don't have a lemon. Slash the skin a few times um, and into the muscle to get a little bit more seasoning in there um, as when I salt it because there's salt on this and oil, just a plain canola oil, nothing too exciting, just to mainly help the skin crisp up. Slash the skin uh, a few times. In this case, I got what, maybe one, two, three, four, five, six slashes on one side and probably about the same on the other. You know, maybe about halfway through. It helps things cook a little more evenly. It helps the skin crisp up a little. It's generally just a nice thing to do. It looks good too when you pull it off the grill. Nice big slashes with the gorgeous red meat underneath. I don't know if it's strictly speaking necessary, but it's just about everybody who grills whole fish does it <laughs> all across the world. So perhaps there is a deep scientific reason for it. Anyway, the nice thing about these small fish like this too is that they cook really evenly. You don't have the issue that you can have if you try to cook a bigger fish where you know the, the, the loin will not be cooked all the way through while the belly is like dry and kind of not so good. So it's just gonna take a little while for my chimney starter to start, but once it gets going and I can dump this charcoal out, then we can proceed with the grilling process. Okay, coals are hot. Put them on one side. I don't think I'm gonna need any more. It's just one fish. It won't take too long to cook. It's gonna heat up this grill grate for a little bit few minutes. Get it nice and hot. So we're actually going to cook this fish over mostly indirect heat. We'll start it on just directly over the coals just to kind of get things going. For really thin fish, you can get away with blasting it over the coals directly, but for something like this that does need 15 to 20 minutes on the grill, if you try to cook it directly over the coals, it's definitely going to get charred and kind of nasty. So we will start it directly over the coals, let it stay there for just a minute, not very long, and then I'll spin the grate around. The only really important thing in the whole process is to make sure you start the fish with the backbone on the inside of the grill and the belly facing outside. That way the backbone, which is the thickest part of the fish, when you spin the grate around, and put the fish over the cooler side of the grill, the backbone will be next to the, the hot side and it'll cook a lot faster. And the belly won't tend to overcook so much. That's really the only technical thing to remember. Keep the backbone along the inside of the grill. And I think we're about there. Grab my fish. Nicely stuffed in the belly with the herbs. And we'll just start it over there, adjust the position a little. And now we'll spin the grate. So now the backbone of the fish is facing the hot side of the grill. And now I'm gonna cover it. Get my vents open. Make sure my bottom vents open. Top vents are fully open. And I'll let that go for, we'll call it eight minutes. And then I'll flip the fish over to the other side, which is a somewhat delicate process. A few minutes later, pop the top. Oh, it's looking very lovely. Nice amount of color. I'm gonna flip this thing over and <laughs> dealing with the whole fish, especially in sort of the cramped area of a kettle grill, be a bit of a challenge. So I got a cookie sheet here with a flat side. I'm gonna use that to get under the fish and roll it over with hopefully not too much 
sticking skin a little bit. It's hard not to have at least some of it stick. And now I'm gonna kind of shove it over onto the other side, directly over the coals for just a minute again. Spin the grate. And again. Pop the top on, vents all the way open, and again, set a timer for eight minutes. Okay, it's about eight minutes later. Check on this, whoa. Oh, it's lovely. Oh, the skin's gotten nice and crispy. Orange of it is showing through like a tiger. It looks fantastic. I think we should be done, obviously. You know, if you do have a little bit thicker fish, it might take a little longer than 16 minutes. Always temp it if you need to. 134 is a nice target for salmon. There we go. Okay, I got my giant cookie sheet spatula out. The cookie sheet spatula is very handy. Otherwise, it's really easy to wind up knocking big chunks of fish everywhere this fella up. Now it would be very simple of course to throw this on a plate and call it good. Simple, acceptable, delicious, but you know we're kind of weird on this show. So let's make things a little bit nicer. So first I'm going to pull all this sage out. You know the other thing that the by putting the herbs inside does it provides a little more insulation for the belly of the fish so it doesn't dry out. Now, I think the bare minimum thing that you should do is pull the skin off on the presentation side. It's very pretty to do so, and then people don't have to worry about getting chunks of fish skin in their bite. Strip all this skin off, it just peels right off. It's really easy to do, and it looks nicer. You know, now instead of having kind of a corpse looking thing, you actually have something that does resemble food. So that's sort of level one. At this point, you could very easily dress the outside of the salmon with, uh, you know, some different herbs. But what we're going to do is something slightly different. First, we're going to very gently cut the head off as neatly as possible. Reserve the head. We're going to leave the tail. Make sure that you've got all the skin from around the backbone. Because now, if you gently start at the tail, and go very, very gently. All of the bones on the bottom side of the fish will come away. Again, this is a very gentle process. Helped along a bit with a fish spatula. The pin bones on the bottom come out. The rib bones on the bottom come out. You almost always, there usually will wind up being a pin bone or two, but it's typically not too much of a problem. Gently, gently. So now I have successfully lifted the entire top side of the fish off. So now on the bottom, I just have the bottom filet, which I can now go through and clean up any little stray bits of skin or other sorts of gunk that are not very nice looking, not very nice tasting. And I have a perfectly boneless filet of a whole side of salmon. Now I flip the, what was formerly the top half over and once again, gently slide my fingers under the backbone and the backbone and all of the ribs and all of the vertebrae and the entire skeleton very gently peels right out. You go through and clean up any stray bits of skin and whatever. Typically, some of the pin bones will come out. Some of them will stay behind. Most of them come out though, in my experience. And now, again, being very careful, and this helps to have multiple spatulas, you bring it back over, lay it on top of the first one on your serving platter very gently. Clean it up a little bit, reattach the head. My serving platter is slightly small, so I kind of have to squish a little bit to get the head on. Pop the tail off, attach the tail at the end as well, and you now have a reassembled, and this is the kind of thing that, you know, it's, it's difficult to get it completely perfect looking, so it's nice to have some, you know, maybe some garnish salad bits to arrange around the sides of it to cover up, you know, the split backbone and that sort of thing. Maybe some herbs to distract the eye a bit. You can say, you can reassemble it very, very precisely, but there's always gonna be, a, you have just taken a fish apart and put it back together. 
sauces are appropriate to go around and sort of fill in the holes. And you can really make this look spectacular while also being really awesome for something like a barbecue because people can just come over, cut off a slice, no bones to deal with, no skin to deal with. They've just got food. <laughs> you know, you've gotten rid of all the stuff that you don't want on the salmon and you've kept only the stuff that you do. Best one of the year, probably one. Yeah. What'd you get? Guessing 300 fish? Or secret? <laughs> like three! <laughs> There are four ways to catch salmon in commercial quantities. By far the most efficient is the fish trap in which fish are caught as they enter their natal streams to spawn. Fish traps require very little labor and can quite easily catch every single fish in a stream. When Alaska was still a territory, the salmon industry was dominated by the Seattle canneries that owned these traps and eliminating them was one of the principal goals of statehood. So now, there are three ways to catch salmon in commercial quantities. Turn that out. Turn the, the, the purse line's kind of messed up. You got that, the corner, the corner there? You need the, you need the tow line, you got it? Look good? There's trolling, which comes closest to the average person's idea of fishing. Hooks are attached to lines, which are attached to poles, which are attached to the boat, and the fish are reeled in. There's gill netting, in which a net is stretched from the shore or from a boat, and the fish are caught by the mesh itself. And then there is Seining, in which entire schools of fish are encircled by a net, a line at the bottom is tightened, and the whole ball is hauled aboard. It takes two boats to handle a purse seine, the big boat and a skiff. Right now, since a haul has just been completed, the skiff is attached to the stern of the big boat with a quick-release hook. The net is piled on the back deck, one end attached to the skiff, one end attached to the big boat. Your depth is two. Two. You good? You good? Because you just had like a pretty decent set. Yeah, that was but a good you, one. But you're thinking about moving. Well, this tide street came through with this glacial water, and I just think this set's going to fall on its face. But it's hard to leave if you had a good one. Do they avoid? This kind of silty water? No, just just any change like this with the tide rip and stuff will change the set. Because it slowly built up to that good set and then... Was that at the peak of the tide? Or? It's going to fall on its face. I'm not going to give away all my secrets, well. Jeff. <laughs> <laughs> it was not at the peak of the tide. But it's it's at a certain stage of the tide that this does, tends to get good and then it tends to like drop, build to a crescendo and then drop on its face. But do I have the... Uh, gumption to leave and try something else because I did kick myself the other day when I left the good set and then people kept doing well. Or do I just wait my turn for another 45 minutes and how does the, uh, roll the dice again here? Because you guys just get in line, right? Whoever gets there first gets first go and... Yep, in different sets. In, in certain established like hook sets we call them, you get in line and then other sets there's people that just do sets sort of in between on their own or Occasionally you can find jumpers offshore, schools moving offshore, and you can set, we call them tow hauls, but you can set around those and hold them. And those can be pretty good for fish that are uh, moving the other direction. Or That's the main thing when you're setting your, you're setting like a big sea basically, and you want to make sure your sea is open in the direction that the fish are coming as opposed to open for the fish the other direction when they're leaving your net. <laughs> Might try to see how the other guy does if he doesn't turn his boat around and hide it. 
There's a lot of gamesmanship in salmon fishing, I've noticed. There's a lot of gamesmanship. There was no hiding that last one, though. Those guys were right on top of us. <laughs> yeah, I saw them all pull over. The whole crew standing there watching us. Yep, well, it's always kind of fun to roll a big one when everyone's watching. Might have been our biggest one of the year. Nice. To keep you on board, Jeff. So that's pretty much the whole game then. You just, you had a good set, and now are they are they somewhere else? Yeah. Decisions, decisions. Deciding which set's going to produce and which one isn't. It's like Hamlet. Try to get information from uh, boats at other sets or... Because you guys talk a lot. I mean, you won't let me record you talking, but... <laughs> <laughs> I hear we you talk talking. amongst the boats, yes. <laughs> are there... Uh, we record a little bit of it, but... Are there, are I just there, think it's not fair to them either. Yeah. Oh no, that's, they a, that's tell a, about how much they hate that cooking show. <laughs> <laughs> are there are there clicks? Yeah, there's radio groups, which I guess is another name for a click. Yeah. But definitely. Well, this Dolly B is that's his nephew on that other boat. So there's, and then this guy uh, in the black boat, his dad and brother fish. Um, so they're together and definitely groups. Hopefully, you're able to record how cold those fish are. They went into a nice. Icy cold bath. Well, I mean, you're legendary for the, <laughs> the quality of your fish. <laughs> Thank you. That's why I'm here. <laughs> Take care. Except for that one time I forgot to put ice on the last load of halibut. I still remember Top that. ice him? Yeah. And I wasn't very happy? Yeah. But they ended up being fine? Yeah, they were fine. You were disappointed. <laughs> Okay. When the deckhands pull the quick release hook, things happen fast. The skiff drives off one way, the big boat the other. The net starts to pay out. The seine is hung between two lines. One has foam corks at regular intervals, floats, and is called the cork line. The other has a lead core, sinks, and it's called the lead line. There are different ways of stacking a seine on deck, but the important thing is to keep the corks well apart from their corresponding leads, because if the lead line goes out over the corks, it creates an exit door for any fish who find themselves in the vicinity, as well as an opportunity for a skipper to try out their vocabulary of curses. But assuming the seine has been properly stacked, it sets smoothly and quickly. With a gill net, the idea is that the mesh size is large enough for the fish's head to enter, but too small for its body. The net is made of almost transparent monofilament, ideally too small for the fish to easily see. When it feels the mesh and tries to swim backwards to get out, the mesh gets caught behind the gill plate, tangles in the gills, and the fish is trapped. The seine, however, is more like a wall. Sane twine is thick and black and easy for salmon to see. Even if they don't see it, they feel it right away. They swim up to it and stop. They swim along it, trying to find a way out, this way and that way. Why fish can't usually find an exit from a not especially complex trap is one of the mysteries of nature. But presuming that the set is held in the correct shape, most of the time, they don't. They generally don't get too close to the noise and vibration of the big boat, and they can't get around the skiff on the beach. There is one hole in the system, though. The boat end of the seine goes up through a device called a power block, hanging on a boom high off the deck, about which more in part two of this show. The angle at which it enters the water, as well as the need to keep the net well clear of the propeller, makes a six to ten foot gap between the back starboard corner of the boat and the net. If they can find that gap, they're gone. So the job of the deckhand during the set is to pick up a metal pole, eight or 10 feet long with a metal bell on the end and plunge it into that gap over and over and over again to try to scare fish away from an escape. melting and I've got in another saucepan one kilo 
2.2 pounds of red salmon, specifically red salmon scraps. These are the bits left over from filleting, um, mostly just kind of little bits of spoon meat and the tail pieces, which is uh, probably as good a point as any since I've got to stand here and wait for the butter to melt to talk about how I have gradually over the years developed the way that I like to cut up salmon. Um, I learned it obviously the way that everybody learns it where you just run the knife down one side as close to the backbone as possible, run the knife down the other side as close to the backbone as possible. And I learned it that way and I never was super happy with it. I don't really like the, the shape of the, the actual fillet portion that you get out of that where you get the sort of big flat loin and then the little curved belly meat. It just doesn't look that great. It doesn't cook that evenly. It doesn't look nice on a plate either. It's just kind of a big square that's not that interesting. I've always kind of thought that it could be better, you know, so you kind of watch and learn. There's a lot of, everybody's got their own way, you know, Some, and everybody likes to insist that their way is the best way. Well, I'm not going to insist that my way is the best way. It's just sort of how I've come to do it over the years, mostly because I'm looking for different parts of salmon to use for different things. To me, salmon is basically the pig of Alaska. All the different bits are really good for different things. I bought eight salmon off of Malcolm, and uh, I was butchering them yesterday, and sort of every time I do it, I refine things a little bit, and I think about things a little different way, and, and I was pretty happy with how these came out. So just to run you quick through the process of how I do it, um, especially if I have a little time and a little, it's, it's a little, it's more labor intensive for sure than just running your knife down the side and then portioning it out and pinboning it and calling it a day. I mean, it's, it's definitely more work. The advantage is that you get more different pieces you know, that are sort of tailor-made slightly for different things. So typically what I'll do is, in this case, I, I got them in the round. I got them whole straight off the boat. I gutted them, and I headed all of them except for the one that I threw on the grill. In this case, I cut them like a black cod. I cut them behind the collar, and then I cut the collar off the head. The collar is the piece sort of behind the gill plate and behind the the first the pectoral fins. There's a little chunk there. It's really good meat. But it's not like, you know, it's, it's, it's all in little pockets. There's a bunch of cartilage, there's a bunch of bone. So you kind of got to work at it. Um, but they're really good for smoking. So I cut the collars off the heads. The way that I do almost all of them now, the way my preferred method is I go right behind the anus and I make a straight cut and cut off the tail. I don't like to cook the tail, you know, like a, like a filet. It's really common to do that, and I used to do it all the time, and it was never that great because it's, it's really easy to overcook the tails. They're really thin. It's really easy to not make them, to take something that is really delicious and turn it into less delicious, and that's not what we're trying to do, you know. Our goal here is to take things and turn them into things that are more delicious. So I cut the tail off straight down, just behind the anus. Set that aside. I deal with the tail at the end, usually. The way that, that I typically head the fish, I angle cut them. So I cut off the little chunk at the... At the head end of the uh, salmon, there's a little peak, kind of a little triangular peak. I cut that off. I throw that in with the stuff I'm going to smoke. So I get, I get a few different containers going. One is for scraps. One is for pieces that are going to be smoked. The other couple are for traditional sort of, here's a fillet, a piece of fish treatment. So now it's squared off at the head. It's squared off at the tail. And it's roughly the same length, uh, or roughly the same thickness the whole way down now. So I've got kind of a uniform piece. The big difference now is that the belly tapers, and the belly opening tapers as it goes towards the tail end of the fish. So it's a really wide, big belly flap with long pieces of belly at, at the head end, and then it goes down to almost nothing at the tail. So the next thing I like to do is, just on the head inside of the dorsal fin, I do another straight cut. So now I have two chunks. So I cut, I cut the, the middle section in half, basically in half, it's not quite in half, just ahead of, of the dorsal fin. In the front half, typically, if it's a decent sized salmon, I will typically use those to make noisettes or medallions. And we'll talk about those later. What they are is basically a vastly improved steak. And then the back half is first thing, I'll go right along the, uh, the ventral, the line down the side of the fish that I'm completely blanking on what it's called right now. <laughs> but, you know, the little line that runs down where they have the sensors and whatever. And I'll go down that and basically cut along that. And that gets me a piece with belly, and then I get the loin. So then I'll cut the, the belly part in half, and I'll get two nice chunks of belly with, uh, with the little rear fins still attached. And I'll typically cut the rib bones out of those. And so I'll get two nice roughly the same size pieces of belly, even thickness, 
and really nice looking, um, really uniform. Those go in the smoke pile because I like to smoke belly. Obviously, we all know <laughs> belly is the best part of the of smoked salmon. And then the top part, what I'll generally do is I'll cut down the backbone on each side, you know, obviously as close to the backbone as you possibly can, and then cut along the bones that run off the backbone to the sides of the fish. And that gets me two really nice, really uniform, kind of triangular shaped pieces of loin. And that is my favorite way to cut a loin because it just, it looks so good on the plate. Plus it's a really, it's easy to cook consistently because it's all the same thickness. You know, you're not having the typical, like when you, when you cut the, the whole side of the fish, you don't get the big chunk of loin and then the little thin chunk of belly. You get one nice, big, uniform piece of fish. It's really easy to time. I think it looks better on the plate. You can you get a lot of choices with how you can cook it. Um, you can just leave the skin on and saute it. We'll talk about cooking these loin chunks later as well, because we're gonna do, we'll do a section on cooking a noisette or a medallion, and then we'll do a, and how to prepare those. And then we'll do a section on how to cook the loin. Um, but that's basically it. And then the tail piece, I, just cut, you know, right off the backbone, get the spoon meat off. I'll skin the tail piece and I'll throw those in with the scraps because to me, tail piece, they're, they're great for like sauteing to have like a quick, you know, if you want like a little sandwich or whatever. But they basically, to me, the tail is something to be used for not like, this is the main focus of the meal. It'll go in fish cakes, it, it, you can do all kinds of stuff with it. Today, what I'm doing right now and the reason that I'm clarifying a pound of butter or I'm not even clarifying it, I'm just cooking a little of the water out. The reason I'm melting a pound of butter is so that I can make something that I believe we made during the duck show, and we made something very, very similar during the frozen shrimp show. We're gonna be making riettes with salmon. So here we are an hour and a half later, we'll see if the wait was worth it. The skiff's on the beach, how long do you wait? Um, generally, we when we're on a line like this, we do half-hour turns. So, you, from the time you release your skiff to the time you're closed up, should be a half hour. But if you're uh, by yourself, it just kind of depends on the fish. If you try to watch them go in the net, and then judge if they're getting antsy and want to get out, or whether you can hold them. I mean, some guys will set for two hours sometimes. Oh yeah. But I'm not a big. Uh, long set type person. I get impatient and want to close it up and see what I got. So I'm watching Bacchus, my skip, skiff man there on the beach and a little bit of a roll. It's doing good, keeping the net as close to the beach as possible but not endangering himself. What is the skiff man's job right now? To hold the net as close as the beach as possible but not endanger himself. <laughs> the fish generally run close to the beach, although not always. So you try to get the net in, in there as close as you can. And, and then when you when you start closing up, you're going to move towards him. Yeah, I'm sort of holding like a big, uh, well, that C shape that I talked about, though, fluctuates depending on your tide and, or, well, current and wind and things. But the idea is to hold it open as much as possible and wide as possible for as long as possible, but still keep enough shape to keep the fish in. If you hold it too wide, they'll just swim through your little sea and right out the end, other end, but. So generally they're gonna hit the back of the net. Follow the net along. Yeah, they're trying to go west in this point. But hold on, that might be the skip man. Did you call? Yeah, I just let you know. I'm gonna hold it as close as I could, but I'm gonna Yeah, Roger, yep, just do what you can. We're looking good. Is he having a hard time? Um, he just said he's holding as close as he can, but the swells are pretty big in there, which, I'll make a caveat, they're big by Ketchmack Bay standards, but <laughs> not by Kodiak. Kodiak's legendary for their vicious weather. Yeah, I've seen dudes sailing there in like 10 footers. Sailing sanding in big seas. How long's the net? The net is uh, limited to 250 fathoms in Lower Cook Inlet, which is approximately a quarter mile. And how deep? Well, they're measured in strips, and a strip is 100 meshes, and then people use a different mesh size. So most of mine's three and a quarter, and it's about two and a half strips, most of it although it tapers on the ends. 
and a net is uh, the depth of a net whether you stretch it out straight or whether it's being towed is going to be quite a bit different i usually think it'll touch the bottom in about 40 feet of water probably i think technically i could touch in 60 feet of, but once you're towing on it it gets a lot of uh, side tension on it so it gets a lot smaller is it the same net for reds as for pinks yep we we do some everyone's got their own way of hanging their nets and tuning them so but i got this from a kodiak guy and used it for a long time and by no means an expert net uh, tuner but it seems to work so I'm just playing with the RPMs and the uh, shape of the net here to just try to keep enough of a hook that we're keeping the fish happy and back there and but keeping them as wide as I can and then also sort of playing with the wind to make sure that we're not laying in the trough which is sideways to the waves where the boat's rolling around a lot oh, he's pulling his plunger getting ready to plunge big debate I told him for every thousand plunges, one might turn the fish around. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is always something I wondered, you know, because half the time I would feel like I'm just plunging so I look busy, and then half the time I would feel like maybe I was accomplishing something. Well, half is a stretch. <laughs> I mean, I, I've definitely I've definitely seen them turn around. In the silty water when you can't see the fish coming and they're not jumping a lot, like right now, it's, you know, it's, it's marginal, but it is sort of busy work. But when it's clear, like around the corner and maybe Windy Bay or other areas where it's not, there's, they don't have the glacial silt. You can uh, see the schools in the water, especially the pinks. I'll be up in the crow's nest and you can tell the guys to plunge or move the boat in and watch the schools turn back around. You know, the other, the other great argument that I always heard about plunging was whether it was the noise or whether it was the bubbles. Yeah, I'm, I'm a noise. You're, you're on the noise? Yeah, I'm on a noise under the water thing too because I try to tell my deckhands to make a big pop that sounds like a pop above the water that most of the energy is expended there, but if you're thrusting it down into the water, you can feel that and that's the actual fish turner, which we have in a, gone in a skiff and experimented with it with schools up in a, like a small bay and stuff where you can see them clear, they're just laying around. Sometimes the schools just lay there and then you, you can just plunge in different ways and see what reacts, but we definitely found like the big thrust underwater was the most effective. But the plunging they're doing now, that's just a menial busy work <laughs> I don't think a fish would be scared by that if it was they're, right next to it <laughs> they're gonna they're gonna be really bummed when they hear this show so the Catchmack Bay fishery is is much less like drive around and look for the fish and more like you pretty much know where they're gonna go and well you try to predict where they're gonna go but there is some driving around and looking for them they just don't show as much but yeah other other areas are definitely a lot more like hunting around and finding them. Although China Poot's different. I mean, people that are fishing China Poot and their jitneys are definitely hunting around and looking for them, whereas a lot of these other bread sets are just kind of hook sets that we're, that we're doing. And the jitney's a shallow draft boat, so you can go up further in. Yep, like in the China Poot through the bars and the shallow water they have in there. When do you decide that it's time to go check it out in there? Do you just get reports that there's fish back there? or? Yeah, it's just sort of a one of, another one of those decisions like is it gonna be better in there or better out here so what do you find are the differences between like fishing for reds and fishing for pinks well pinks are larger schools reds tend to travel faster in general so uh, you can hook for them better i think pinks a lot of time you want to tow up on them or or uh, get around them like in a round haul type situation around halls where you can just set your skiff off and do just one quick complete circle no sea hold hold or any little trap or anything you just go circle around a school pink's the volume fishery. pink is a volume fishery yep bread's a money fishery as far as the price per pound right now i think we're getting a dollar fifty so for reds and we might get 30 cents for pinks so if you're pink fishing you need to catch five times as much to equal it out just surveying the area check where the other boats are and how the net's laying. Where are Catchmack Bay Reds mostly from? Like where are these? Are you getting Kenai, Kenai River fish or? Uh, very seldomly, some, we'll get some of those big Kenai ones which look distinctively different. They're kind of blue back, we'll call them blue backs. But right now we're getting, um, we're, we're sitting outside of China Poop Bay. So we're getting the Cook Inlet Aquaculture Association released fish that are heading back there. It's a terminal run. They release them in Leisure Lake. They smolts and they go down the falls and head out to sea and grow up. And, try to get back to the falls, but they actually can't get back into Leisure Lake because of those falls. So the Saners get a crack at them here, and then the ones we don't get end up at the falls and 
there. It's open for a personal use dip net fishery. So we're open three days a week. So I've heard varying reports, but in general, it's, the dip netting's been pretty good this year. I've heard that too. We're, we're open Monday, Wednesday, Friday right now. What times? It's 6 a.m. to 10 p.m. So we're starting at 6 a.m. You're allowed to set your net, and you have to be your net has to be closed to uh, cease fishing at 10 p.m. Who runs the hatchery? He's cooking a little aquaculture, but are they? Is that a state deal, or are they? Uh, are they both in my private? Yeah. Well, there it's it's in uh, Alaska Department of Fish and Game owns the hatchery, and then Cookland Aquaculture Association is leased is a uh, hired to run it, and Cookland Aquaculture is a has a board made up of area fishermen from different fishing groups throughout the region and they're funded by the cost recovery so on days that the common property is not fishing or certain areas are closed they'll catch fish and sell them to the processors which allows them to pay for the operations and there's also a two percent tax on fishermen in low, upper cook inlet and lower cook inlet so every year we're where two percent of our gross revenue is taken out and uh, goes to the hatchery to cook in the aquaculture to, in order to run the hatcheries. So these were these are actually raised in Trail Lakes hatchery. There's one in Tutka Bay and there's also one in Port Graham. Are the three that cook in the aquaculture runs? So it's pretty much self-funded. Oh yeah, yeah. In the past, when they're build programs, they'll take loans, state loans. But no, it's all it's funded as far as by uh, either cost recovery and the enhancement tax. I call it. Do you do you do the cost recovery or? I have not done cost recovery. Is, that, is it open to anybody or do they just have certain boats? Uh, well, it gets bid out to a cannery or a, one of the processors and whichever processor wins the bid, in other words, whoever wants to pay the most for the fish in advance, promise the most, then they uh, are responsible for hiring a catcher fleet. There's a group of boats that generally have taken, taken that on, that they all work together. Now you're getting into the dry stuff. My show deals with a lot of that. <laughs> Do you fish exclusively for one uh, cannery or can you sell to pretty much anybody? I tend to sell just to one. I, I sell to Icicle Seafoods. Other boats will sell to multiple canneries depending on the circumstances. But you're not like locked in with them? I'm not locked in with them. I don't have like a contract necessarily, but I like to, uh, I mean, they take care of me and, and in return I sell all my fish to them. So they'll provide crane services and um, take care of gear storage sometimes or, or different and they have tender service that they're, so if I have fish, if I'm in the outer coast or even here, like today, the guy on the Bruin Bay brought me ice. So that, that's a great service. But if you're, fit, if you're selling to a bunch of different canneries and they're less likely to, to take care of you in particular. But mo most people have a primary cannery that they, they sell to, I'd say. But if you play people against each other, they won't bring you ice cream on the tender? They did start bringing us ice cream last year when we found out- Oh, you finally made ice cream. Wow, because I remember when I fished with you in this fisher, they never bought us ice cream. Lower Cook Inlet got ice cream. <laughs> so we're closing up now. No, not quite, not quite. I, I was just saying, I get a little ahead of myself. We're, we're sort of, we're tightening the circle here to make sure that any fisher in the net will stay in there. But I'm actually backing off a little. I'm watching my skiff, man. So when he, uh, playing the surf. When he brings us back the other end of the net, then what happens? Well, he'll pass the end of the net off to the boat, to the boat, and we'll hook that up here so the net, net's completely complete circle. And then he's going to uh, attach to a tow line on the side corner of the big boat, and then he'll tow us around the net. And I'll put this boat in neutral so that doesn't the net doesn't get caught underneath us. I'm not backing back out a little bit here because I got too close, too busy being interviewed. <laughs> So once once he hooks up and then goes around with the tow line, like he's pretty much running the. Yep, and I'm trying to give him directions and flap my arms and point <laughs> in directions, but he's learning learning a lot now. I'm actually giving him a lot less uh, instruction. So those other guys must have done okay. They're still hanging around. Yep. Well, yeah, I think the one guy looked like he had a decent enough set to stay. I mean, it's just hard to know if you go somewhere and take a gamble or just stay where it's producing. It's just enough of a swell where it might end up moving after this one. My skiff man doesn't look that happy in there. Not too many jumpers though. Do all the species jump? Uh, yeah, kings jump the least, although we don't see or catch many kings, I guess. Maybe that's why I think they jump the least, but yeah, let's see, they all jump, definitely. Everyone looks a little different. Pinks are sort of just lazy. They just kind of plop. Chums are the most probably voracious jumpers. They'll go fast and jump hard. Sockeye tend to jump with direction, like they're trying to get somewhere, whereas pinks don't seem like they're in too much of a hurry. I'm trying to time my 
shape of my net so by half an hour I'm to the beach and or close enough where you can close off. Brought it out just a little more and even it out. Jumpers, Malcolm. Coming down. Yeah. And under. A little longer. Make sure. You see these fish limit in? There's some jumpers up ahead, yeah. We're hoping to stay open long enough to get them. Pushing a half hour to the keep them on the beach right till the end. Yeah, Roger. Yeah, it's getting. Seems like it's getting a little nicer. I think we're getting around that corner too. But yeah, you're doing good. Just come on out whenever you're done. Give them the circle signal to close up. And actually. These will not technically only be riettes because technically riettes are small and you use them, they're very small and, and they're more of a paste. So th there will be some of those involved, uh, but there will also be larger chunks of uh, the tailpiece involved, similar to the potted shrimp. So you could say that we're making both potted salmon and salmon riettes. I really don't care about food terminology that much, um, as long as we know what we're talking about. Basically what we're going to be doing is cooking some salmon in a lot of butter, some salmon that has been salted, and then packing it into various containers with the butter that it has cooked in, so that it will keep for longer than it will raw. I've got a couple of different methods I'm going to use here, or a couple of different storage options. One, I have my long skinny terrine that has made appearances on the show before. I'm gonna use that as a mold, and I'm gonna use that as a mold mostly for the, the riette side of things, where I'm looking specifically for a paste. I'm not gonna do anything crazy flavoring-wise with this. Uh, I have a ton of herbs. I just went out to the garden and picked them. I've got a lot of chervil, and chervil is a classic herb that we don't really get because it's very delicate and it doesn't dry at all well. It doesn't last very long after it's been picked, maybe a day or two tops. So it doesn't really ship well. So typically chervil is uh, something you're going to have to use basically fresh out of the garden. It's classic with eggs. It's, it's kind of like a, it's like a very sort of delicate parsley flavor with a little bit of just a slight sort of fennel edge. It's very, very delicate though. It's, it do, it's not overpowering, but it's very distinctive and nothing else quite tastes like it. Uh, so I've also got a little bit of parsley. Uh, in this case, I forgot to buy curly parsley seeds, which was a mistake, but I have a, so now I have a ton of flat leaf Italian parsley. So I just used a little bit of that, just a few leaves just to give it a little bit of that sort of vegetal edge. A little dill, obviously, because it's salmon and salmon and dill are classics together. Uh, and a little bit of bronze fennel, which is a, grown as an herb, and it tastes like fennel, as you might expect. And some mint, just a few mint leaves, because I have a ton of it and I like mint. And I really like mint in herb mixtures where you can't really pick it out as mint, but you definitely get that sort of palate activating menthol shot. So the salmon, is sitting in another saucepan. I'm gonna, I'm gonna pour the butter over it, sort of work the butter in. And this salmon, this is again, this is the tail meat, this is little scraps, this is fillets that I cut wrong, you know, or bits that I messed up and don't wanna use as a presentation piece. It's all the, you know, this spoon meat, there's a lot of different stuff in here, just random little bits. And I salted them with, I want this to keep, we're not looking for these to be, um, shelf stable or anything so we don't have to worry about that and I'm not gonna I'm not gonna pressure can them the riettes that I put into my into my mold what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna chill that down and then I'm gonna freeze it and then I'm gonna backpack those and put them in the freezer the rest I'm going to pack into mason jars cover them with this melted butter and then I might need to melt a little bit more and throw them in the fridge and they'll keep there for at least two to three weeks so I've turned my burner off and I'm just gonna let this butter sort of cool down a little bit. It's not completely clarified, or it's not completely devoid of water. It's still bubbling a little bit, but I've gotten quite a bit of the water out, which I am now about to replace with some salmon juices. And here we go. I'm gonna pour it over the top of my salmon. And I've got a spatula and I'm just kind of moving the salmon around because I want to make sure that the butter is filling every available space. You can see it's already cooking a little bit. Salmon is turning slightly opaque. 
So our goal here, we're going to cook this stuff further than we would if we were cooking like a filet because we do want to cook out a little more of the water. And the advantage of this, the advantage of cooking this in fat is because it makes it much easier to hold a very, very low temperature. The trick with, with making riettes or the very similar confit or any of these sort of cook something at a low temperature in a big pot of fat is you want the temperature to stay very, very low because you don't want to, you want to drive out the moisture, but you want to do it in a very, very controlled manner. You want it to happen really slowly. This is sort of like barbecue. <laughs> I, I always, I always think of this process as very similar to barbecue. It's supposed to happen at a low temperature for a fairly long time. And it's just the fat, the, the main purpose of the fat is to, to better regulate temperature because fat holds a particular temperature much better than just about any other uh, cooking medium. The water is getting driven out. Everything's getting sterilized. Everything inside there, any pathogenic bacteria are, are being killed. It's like everything good is happening. Plus, there's butter. <laughs> I do want to also note that I still, my, uh, my herbs are not in there at this moment. I'm not going to add my herbs in until we get finished with the cook process and we get ready to start putting them into the jars and their various molds and their whatever. Because I want the herbs to have that bright freshness. I don't want the herbs to cook for the half hour or whatever that this is going to take. The reason that butter is best is because it's a saturated fat. Um, you can do it with, with, say, olive oil or canola oil or any, any of the other you know, oils that you can cook with. The trouble is they're going to remain liquid even after this has been cooled down and refrigerated, which is not the best um, texture, you know, if you're looking for a more of a spread, you know, unless you drain quite a bit of the oil off. Um, so if you're just doing like big pieces that you then want to fish out and use, that's okay. They can just sit suspended in the oil. That's why saturated fats are better for this kind of thing because they form like a paste at room temperature and slightly below. So I'm going to let this go for a while. And uh, once it's cooked, we'll come back and start talking about it. All right. So it is about a half an hour later. I think we're getting pretty close. I've tested a little chunk of the top, uh, you know, some of the salmon closest to the top. And the texture is actually very similar to uh, like a, a hot smoked salmon. It's firm and it's slightly dry, but it's not overcooked. You know, it, it's not squeezed out tasting. I think we're there. You know, if you were doing this with pork or with duck or anything like that, obviously you're going to be cooking it a lot longer. But those have lots of connective tissue to break down. So what I'm doing first is I'm making my herb butter. I'm pouring out all the butter, or most of the butter, not, you don't have to worry about all of it, into my herbs. And this accomplishes a couple of things. One, it gets my butter nice and herby. And two, the butter's hot. You know, it's well over, well, it's around, it's over 212, which is more than most bacteria can survive particularly the ones that hang out on leafy herbs. So it's helping eliminate any bacteria that might be sticking around. And so now I'm going to start prepping the various concoctions that we'll be making here. And the first one is I want to package a couple of these into mason jars for consumption over the next couple of weeks. And I'm just taking sizable chunks of salmon and dropping them into a mason jar. Now, if you were really, if you wanted to pressure can these and let them last a lot longer, you would definitely want to go through the process of sterilizing the jars. Uh, in this case, because they're just going to go in the fridge and I'm going to be consuming them within, you know, within a couple of weeks tops. I'm not going to worry myself too much about that. But anyway, some nice big chunks. These will be really nice to eat and, and you know, you can make salmon salad out of them or put them on rice or whatever. It's just a real simple sort of quick thing to eat. And I've got my nice herb butter and I'm going to get a, get a ladle. Just ladle that right over, cover it up, set that aside, pop the top on it. That is ready to go. For the rest of this, uh, I got a little ramekin here and this is going to be for, I'm not going to make full on pounded riettes here. I'm just going to have some big chunks, nice chunky chunks, break them down a little bit in my ramekin. That's quite lovely. And then we'll add some more some herbs right to the top of that. Smush that in there in my ramekin. This is going to be a very lovely dip. 
because now the rest of this is going to go into the mold to be chilled and then frozen and then vacuum packed as riettes that I will then have whenever I would like them over the long wintry months ahead. And I'm just putting them in here and smashing them up. Some people will make their riettes in a uh, in a blender, you know, and try to get like a really, really fine paste. Personally, I like them with a little more texture. I'm just gonna pound them down. I think this will actually be just about the perfect amount of butter. You want it to be mostly fish. It's a sign of a cheap charcutier that, that their riettes are mostly fat. It smells really good. Mmm, that's good. Yeah, 3% salt is really nice. It's not overly salty. It's not really, it's not as salty as like smoked salmon even brings out the flavor. So now I'm going to pack them into the mold here. And I've got the mold lined with plastic wrap, which I almost always do for something that isn't going to cook. You know, it's not going to, I'm not cooking it in the mold. I'm just packing it in there and using it. You can run the risk <laughs> of uh, just using oil, you know, or some nonstick spray or whatever. I don't like to live on the edge when it comes to unmolding things. Too many disasters in the past. And we really want to pack them down. We want to eliminate as much air as we can. If you were doing this for long-term storage and you, you didn't have access to freezers and vac seals and that kind of thing, you would definitely want to top this with melted butter because the other thing that that does, well, the main thing that it does is it, it eliminates air from the mixture. Air is something that bacteria require, much like us. So, I'm going to cover it over the top, the plastic wrap, and I have a lid for the mold. And so that, I'm just going to put that in the fridge as well and let that chill down. When that's chilled, I will unmold the whole thing, and I think this one I can probably cut into thirds, freeze the thirds separately, and then vac seal them after I've frozen them so that they'll maintain their shape in the in the vacuum pack. And so now I have some riettes right now to eat in the very near future. And then I have a nice jar that I can pick out of for the next couple of weeks. This very simple kind like this, where you're keeping it in the fridge, you don't want to try to keep it for very long. I wouldn't go past three weeks, but, uh, but it will get you a nice medium term storage option for your, for your salmon. And then for the longer term stuff, we rely on the freezer. Check the Pantry is a production of KBBI AM890 in Homer, Alaska. It's produced and hosted by Jeff Lockwood. Parts of this episode were recorded on board the FV Captain Cook, owned and operated by Malcolm Milne. His deckhands are... My name's uh, Josh Evans. Aurelio Baldeski. Rio Shemit Pitcher. The theme music is String Quartet Opus 10, Movement 2 by Claude Debussy, performed by Quatuor Ebane. This is the first episode of the summer 2020 season of Check the Pantry. Your financial donation as a listener makes this and other KBBI programs possible. Visit the KBBI public radio website at kbbi.org support to help produce programs like this.
Thank you. 